Hello, and real quickly, welcome to part 6. Of course, this is part 6 of an entire audiobook, so you will be starting 5 hours into a full-length audiobook. So, as always, I encourage you to start back at part 1, otherwise everything else won't make a whole lot of sense. So, without further ado, uh, some spoilers as I quickly recap the previous part. Good? Good? You're good with spoilers? Cool. In the previous part, Liam and John and the rest of the crew of the Skyheart boarded the enemy airship that they thought was responsible for the destruction of Northern Tier. Upon boarding the airship, they found that these people were in fact responsible. So then, after destroying that airship, the crew of the Skyheart turns east and continues east, looking for a new mysterious location called the Darkhold. Upon reaching a spot that they thought notable, the city of Genoa, they find a tower, a tower with the marking of the enemy. And that's where this part starts. Liam. I stood just behind Callan as John and the foreign man and woman talked in strict tones. Then, thank you. Read with me. The rest of you, stay here. Then, he just started walking with them. Reed took three bounding steps to catch up with him. Callan was about to start forward, then stopped. The four disappeared into the tower, leaving the rest of us to stand there, a little awkwardly. John, has just walked into unknown territory, unarmed. Soon, all of the people left the terrace. I had a very strong feeling, though, that there were still many suspicious eyes on us. A few minutes went by. Most of the crew filtered back inside the Skyheart, except for Callan, who nervously paced back and forth in front of the cargo bay door, and Aspen, who sat on the pier, legs dangling over the side. And, finally, me, who was sitting on a crate. Callan froze, looking towards the lower set of stairs. I looked toward where his head was pointing. A woman in her mid-thirties came hurrying up the steps, on the terrace, bag slung over her shoulder, sword on her back. She was almost running towards the skyheart. Callan stepped out onto the small wooden pier, then onto the stone terrace. I got up quickly and came to the doorway of the skyheart. The woman literally came to a sliding stop in front of Callan, who, to his credit, tried to imitate John's confident air, but he failed. She dropped to her knees. Aspen was on her feet now, sword partway out of her scabbard. I looked around. About a dozen people had come from all around, down from the left side and up from the right, all advancing cautiously, weapons not yet drawn. I looked up. The second, much smaller terrace, that had looked empty, now had several people on it, bows and hands, not yet drawn. I knew by the slight rolling of Callan's eyes and his head that he had seen all of this in as well. Take me with you, Perfor Favor, she yelled at Callan. I finally saw her eyes. They looked desperate. Callan took a step back, seemingly pushed by the strength of her conviction. But we can't? 
We, we can't. She stood up. Please. You are hunting that voluntarily, Are you not? Callan now looked even more confused. No, I don't know. She gestured at the painted black hand. The black hand? Callan nodded, then looked around again. I looked too. The people that had been advancing were stopped. All hands were off weapons for the moment. She looked more pleading than ever. They take my son. I have to find him. What? Callan said, now sounding hopelessly lost. The woman cried out in frustration, and the armed people all around took a collective step forward. I looked at her. She had tears on her face. I didn't think the frustration was wholly directed at Callan. I need to find my son. Callan crouched down and took her hand. I don't think we can help, even if we could take you with. She jumped to her feet gesturing angrily, clearly searching for words. Then she found them. No. They took him. We were hanging, hiding on the roof. An airship came swooping down. Men dropped them. They took what they wanted. And my son. They took my son. They disappeared northwards. Help me. Please help me. My shoulders slumped with the emotion in her voice. A man who I hadn't noticed approached putting his hand on her shoulder, and spoke to her. I didn't understand a single word, but it clearly pissed her off as she turned around, drawing a sword. The man stumbled back, also drawing his sword. Callan was now back on his feet. Whoa, everyone, calm down. We can work this one out. We just need to put the weapons away. Neither party listened, and the man tried saying something else. But instead of calming her down, she launched at him, and their swords met. All of the people that had been standing rushed forward, but stopped a few feet away from the dueling pair. Their swords clashed again and again. It was clear neither was actually trying to hurt the other. As when their swords met, they moved away and hovered an inch apart from the other. They looked like they were fencing, because they never once used the other hand. Instead, it was raised. So it was even with their heads. One, two, three, the swords hit. Callan started yelling at them. Stop this! The bystanders also started yelling in Italian. The whole time, while the duelers also yelled at each other. Silence! It was a commanding voice. They carried weight and power behind it. Everyone, without fail, listened and went quiet. Looking around for the speaker... The duelers even paused. Then the tight ring of people broke as John stepped through, followed by Reed and a slightly shocked-looking man. The duelers went back at it, this time faster and more ferociously. John held out his hand and said something to Reed. Reed pulled out his sword and handed it over to John as he stepped forward towards the dueling pair. His sword flashed like some kind of sun. Then... His foot went into the man's chest, and suddenly both the man and his sword were flying away, both in separate directions. John faced the woman. Drop it. She crumpled, sword dropping from loose fingers. John handed the sword back to Reed. The crowd drew weapons, looking both shocked and angry. Then a second angry commanding voice called out, and the crowd froze. The woman who had taken John inside the compound had arrived, 
She started calming her people down. You have to help the captain. You have to help, the woman on the ground pleaded, tears pouring from her eyes. John looked down on her. No, no I don't. They take my son. I need to get my son back. John's expression didn't change. Who took your son? The black hand. John glanced up at the painted black hand, then spoke. Does anyone else know of something like this? The man who had been talking with John shook his head. Sarah, she is the only one left from the inner city. He gestured around again. The rest of us were just from the suburbs or the hills. The woman in charge nodded in agreement. John looked at her, long and hard. Aspen. She came over. John said something in her ear. She looked confused, but took off back inside the skyheart. John turned away from the woman still on the ground, and, sounding very casual, said, If you can beat Liam in a duel, you can come with us. Reed, make sure they play fair and don't hurt each other. Come to the gondola immediately after it's over. Then he turned and disappeared into the skyheart, leaving me standing there, now very confused. The woman, who I now knew was Sarah, got to her feet as Aspen came, upholding the sparring rags and a sword. Reed looked over at Sarah, who had picked up her own sword and was readying herself. The woman, who had been with John, looked like she wanted to protest, but said nothing as Reed started speaking. Don't try and hurt each other. Make sure your sword is properly wrapped, and the first person to get what would be a killing blow, or the sword out of your opponent's hand, wins. Understand? He said, staring directly at Sarah. She nodded and took the rags from Aspen. We both quickly and efficiently wrapped our blades, then got back on our feet, facing each other. Reed took a step back. Begin. She lunged at me immediately. I barely dodged, knocking her blade aside. I kept going and rolled. I got back to my feet, just in time to block another blow. She had real desperation in her eyes, and in that moment, I realized that she would rather die than lose this chance to look for her son. And I felt pity. I knew that I couldn't win this fight in a good conscience. I knew I would die for a chance like hers. But at the same time, I couldn't throw it either. Her, not even being able to beat me, a poor swordsman, would get someone killed. All of this passed through my head in a split second as we held our swords together. We split and began circling. She started a swift barrages of swipes, and it was all I could do to keep her at bay. I tried once to return a blow, but she was good. Much better than me, where I had only had bow and knife experience, except for the last seven days. She had had years with a sword, but nevertheless, I barely held my own, back and forth in a circle of the thud of muffled blades again and again. Swords and knives, basically the same thing, right? She slipped, and there was a gap in her defense. I slashed for it, and her blade came flying up and hesitated in my throat. I had been played. She breathed heavily and lowered her sword. 
then looked expectantly at Reed, then at the leader. No smile or look of approval. Just determination. Reed shrugged. Captain's orders. He gestured toward the door. Then he just walked in. I followed close behind. I glanced behind me. Sarah looked back at the woman, who seemed to be in charge. The woman sighed, spoke something, then looking at me, said, Go. Sarah turned, picked up her bag, and went to follow me across the short pier. She didn't look back before she entered the skyheart. Aspen quickly looked around while still trying to be on the dock, and entered. The crowd of people stood there, standing silently, all clustered around the beginning of the short, wooden dock. A shrill bell rang, then the sound of rushing celium, and the hum of the engines. None of the silently watching crowd tried to untie the lines that connected the skyheart, so they stretched tight, then snapped. Still none of the people moved. There was even more coming out of the many doors, watching. The skyheart lifted and began turning. It slowly turned and drifted around the tower. The engines died as we faced eastward. There was one more hissing sound of celium as we rose. Then that stopped, and all the sound there was was the whistling of the wind. The engines roared. The sound almost deafened me. I fell back away from the open door as Skyheart leaped forward, going faster than I had ever felt before. Hugo stepped over to me and smiled. Gotta go fast to begin, then slammed the cargo bay door shut, plunging us into the inadequate electric lights of the Skyheart. I blinked, unable to see, as Hugo left, leaving me there alone. I stood up and dusted myself off then turned and headed into the galley. The speed of the ship was causing it to vibrate in a way that I had never felt before. Dawn, January 22nd. I slid into the gondola. No one else was there. I looked through the glass. All that you could see through one side was a brick wall. I started quickly and efficiently running through the pre-flight check. Everything was in top condition. Good. I was going to need to push the sky hard now. I switched the lights. They started blinking, meaning imminent takeoff. I pulled the black hand order form from my pocket. I flipped it open, paying special attention to the directions on it. To the lake, 145 degrees south. I looked at the world map. North of the Skyheart was a series of small lakes. I rummaged in a drawer underneath a table. I pulled out and placed on a compass. I set it directly next to Genoa. Opposite of 145 degrees is 325 degrees. I whispered to myself as I placed a pencil as my straight edge. 80 miles and a bit. That heading brought us directly to the end of a lake. Now... We just needed to get there. I grabbed the compass and stepped back to the wheel and waited. Soon enough, I heard footsteps and then Reed came gingerly down the ladder. Everyone on board? Yes, sir. I flipped the light. A few seconds later, someone started ringing the bell. Without hesitation, I turned the celium valve wide open. 
I could hear the distinctive hiss as the celium went from its compressed canisters into the bags. At first, nothing happened. Then, the Skyheart slowly began lifting upwards. Within seconds, the gondola had passed the pier. I slowed the rise, looking around. All the ropes tying us on were still attached. Snap! Snap! Snap, snap, snap! And we were free once more. I slowly maneuvered the Skyheart up and past the lighthouse, powered off the engines, and waited until we looked like we were above the mountains. Then I turned down the celium. We hovered. Reed still just standing by the ladder. I took the wheel and turned it, waiting for the slight wind to push the rudder into our path. I watched the compass the whole time. 315, 320, 325 degrees. I slammed the engine throttle, past the green light that it was normally set at for a safe cruising. The Skyheart felt like it leapt forward, the engine screaming at first. Then they died into a dull roar. It was a sunny day. The batteries were full. The solar panels were charging. The engine parts had been replaced and fixed less than a week ago. We could keep this pace at least till sunset. Read. Time. He looked at the pixelated screen. 10.09 local time. I nodded. Somewhere by that lake was a mysterious dark hold. I was going to find it. And those responsible were finally going to know why Earhart had forced peace upon the skies. Two hours crawled by, but at last on the horizon there was a body of water. Reed reached it not soon after spotting it. I stepped over to the ladder and whistled. Nathan appeared, peeking his head over his side. Begin the water refueling. He nodded and took off. Reed, let's bring her down. Yes, sir. We lowered the Skyheart down to the water until the gondola was only about a foot off it. The water was crystal blue, and, at least for now, it was perfectly calm. Now that the engines had died down, that is, as the tube fell in, and water started rushing through the filters, and they began to fill the refill the tanks, Reed leaned back against the wall and looked at me. The journey here had been in complete silence. So, what was that, John? I didn't answer him. I just watched the water level climb. After another couple of minutes, he elaborated more. You can't just keep letting untested strangers come aboard and just hope that they'll work out. I didn't answer him immediately. I can do what I want to read. I found you alone. In the wilderness, I found Aspen, Zoe, Hugo, and now Liam, broken and deserted by everyone and everything. Yet here we are, alive, and still hunting the six. With the water limit reached, the tube came back up. Those two people in the crow's nest were checking the western bank first. Forty minutes went by, and we are the tip of the bay that extended off the main lake, when one beep, followed by one long beep, from the crow's nest. A. Three beeps. S. A.S. was shorthand for airship. One beep, one dash. West. 
Myself and Reed scanned the western side, looking. It looked like it was a valley. It was shaped like a Y, a few miles down. The valley split, too, one going almost directly west, the other north. Coming around the edge of the westernmost valley was a small, black airship, just like the one from Northern Tier. At that moment, I made a decision. It was 12.51 local time. The sun was near its zenith. On the left of the steering wheel were the pressure switches. I flipped them all. I heard the hiss as air rushed into the skyheart. Reed looked at me. Then he asked, knowing exactly what I was thinking. Up-down maneuver. Yes. He slammed the helium valves wide open. The skyheart began rocketing into the air at incredible speeds, and all I could do was hope that no one from that black hand airship would look directly into the sun and notice a small black speck. I watched the altimeter climb 2,000 feet, 4,000 feet, 8,000 feet. We were past the mountains now, still rising. However, I noticed something far off in the distance at the end of the same valley that the airship was coming out of, what looked like two functioning hangars and several airships floating by the base of a mountain, maybe all surrounded by the glittering fence that I could barely make out. God damn, John. I don't think they saw us. I hoped so. I flipped the switch. The red lights blared, informing everyone to get to their battle stations. I advanced slowly, so we were hopefully looked like a high-flying bird. Reed, take the helm. I stepped to the ladder and whistled. A second later, Liam poked his head over the side. Liam, inform Robert that both of you are on the port side cannon. Yes, sir. And, I continued on, send the new one down here. Liam left the ladder. I took back the helm. A second later, the woman who had carelessly... I had carelessly recruited, came down. She tried to salute, and got it wrong. Capitan? In the weapons room, at the stern of the upper floor, there are two bins, one labeled helmets, the other webbing. Grab both and pass one out to the entire crew. Then come down here into the gondola with three sets. Understand? She nodded vigorously. Yes, Capitan. I do that now. She flew back up the ladder. I looked forward to it again. Are you ready for some fancy flying, Reed? Always, sir. The engines hummed softly as we drew close to the target, which almost looked like it was planning on getting itself destroyed. It had positioned itself in the middle of the valley, near the base of the imaginary Y. The woman came clambering down into the gondola holding three helmets and three sets of the about eight-foot webbing with clips on either end. She handed one set to each of us, leaving her standing with the last set. Clip the helmet, I demonstrated by doing the same. Now, wrap one end of the webbing around yourself at your waist and clip into it. She did so. Now clip the other end into the ladder. I clip my other end into the center of the steering wheel. I had positioned myself in front of the steering wheel, 
and just like every time, I made sure all four buttons on the left, the buttons connected to the four lights of the four cannons, were within reach. I looked down. We were directly over the target. With my right hand, I killed the engines. I ran through all of the checks one last time. Breathe in, then out. Ready, Reed? He nodded. Yes, sir. I clicked all four buttons for a split second, telling them to prepare to fire. Hesitated for a long moment, letting them do so. Read. All celium compartments. Zero percent. He closed his eyes and started widely spinning the main valve in a circle. Just like that, we started to plummet down to earth. For a split second, it felt like we were going down gently. Then we were falling, gaining speed. Get ready. The target was coming up fast. 60% now. I heard the bags rapidly snapping to full. My aim was true. We came to an abrupt stop on the starboard side of the other ship, less than a hundred feet away. I hit our port side cannon buttons. A second later, two booms and two massive impacts, one hitting squarely into their gondola. 30% stern, 5% pow. I said as I jammed the starboard engine to full and the wheel hard right. We dove under the enemy ship like a fish. Switching engines, I swung the wheel to the left, bringing us even again, then killed the engines. Bring us back up. We shot back up and were parallel again, only now level with the other side of this airship. This time, without instruction, our cannons fired. Both shots impacted the back end of the ship, and it buckled. The stern swung downward. The nose was angled vertically. It began slowly sinking downward. Then flames burst from both engines. The flames started climbing their way up the ship. The forward bags burst. It went from slowly falling to plummeting in a fiery wreck into the ground. Somehow, by some stroke of luck, it landed directly into the river, near the center of the valley. Steam rose upwards. I unclipped myself, while banking the skyherd away from the wreck. Then, took off the helmet. Just like that, the fight was over. Please go collect these again. I turned and looked at the woman. She was clutching to the ladder, her dear life. It took a moment to process what I had said. My name is Sarah, she said, straightening and unclipping herself. I nodded in acknowledgement. All right, Sarah, go get them. Reed handed her his set, and then she left. I leaned back against the glass, and Reed breathed in heavily. Never gets any less stressful, does it, John? It does. Reed rumped his face, looking at the wreck. They probably didn't get a message out, but we can't be too sure. So, what's next? I pointed to the left valley. We're going to the dark hold. Reed paced over and looked forward, then back to me. Well, we can't go directly there. They'll be looking. I let out a dry, humorless laugh. You see, right there, there's a break between the mountain peaks. Yes. 
we are going to fly the Skyheart up through that and make our way high up in the mountains between the peaks. After that, pray that they didn't get a message out, and when they come to check it out, hopefully they'll believe that the engine suffered an, an unfortunate mechanical error. I don't know, John. That seems shaky at best. I looked forward, thoughtfully. If they do spot us, we will make a run for Visby and bring back hundreds of Earhart troops on their heads now that we know where they are. But first, I need to know more. Reed sighed. I'm with you, sir. Less than an hour later, we're miles from the main valley and up among the much smaller valleys between the mountain peaks themselves, getting ever closer to the dark hold itself and whatever lay there for us. Myself and Reed hadn't spoken throughout the climb up the steep slope. We spent all the way till evening, fighting our way through the mountains. It was drawing close to dark now, as we climbed up yet another steep hill. The sky heart rounded over the crest, and a great crater was splayed out before us. I killed the engines, and walked over the map. We had plastered a geographical map of Europe over the main one. This crater right here, Reed. I think this is the closest we are going to get to the dark hold. I tapped on the spot. I guessed where we were, and where assumed where the dark hold should be. We'd come in on the western side, and the dark hold should be just over the high ridge on the north. Reed walked up next to me and looked too. I agree. We brought the skyheart down into the center of the crater that was almost completely packed with trees. Let's bring her down nice and slow, right here and among the trees, I said to Reed. I lowered the engines almost all the way down as we maneuvered ourselves right in among the high pine trees, so close to the ground that the trees were about ten feet over the top of the sky heart. Now what, John? I looked at the branches, pressing up against the floor of the sky heart. Most of us are going to wait here throughout the night. Two lucky crew are going to climb that bluff on foot and get us our first real look at the Darkhold. How about we go find those lucky two? Liam, January 22nd. The entire crew sat down to eat dinner, John and Reed included, both of whom who had spent the entire day in the gondola. Most had barely finished eating when John stood up and walked to the center of the room, just by the ladder. He cleared his throat. Immediately, the room went silent. I need two volunteers. Everyone's hand shot up, including mine. A smile tugged at John's face, even if it was only for a moment. You don't even know what you're volunteering for. No one's hands moved. All right, then. Up over the mountain, on the northern ridge, is the Darkhold, which most likely contains the people responsible for both Northern Tier and, I suspect, Valley. My hand lowered. I was paying too much attention to keep it up. He looked around, searching. Liam, Nathan, come with me. The rest of you, continue as you were. We followed John into the cargo bay. Now, 
Both of you grab your swords, coats, and water, and then come back here. We both turned and hurried up the ladder. First, into my room. I yanked the tailcoat out of its closet, then went to the weapons locker and grabbed my sword, putting it onto my back. I almost bumped into Nathan as I headed towards the ladder. We climbed down, one after another, going back into the cargo bay. John had opened the door and thrown a rope down. Reed was standing by a crate with a flattened-out map. It was really quite high over Europe, so everything was quite fuzzy. You see that slight dip right there? He placed his finger over it. Myself and Nathan confirmed. Good. Both myself and John think it's going to be the fastest route, as well as getting you the best view. First, go west. Then, once you get near to the end of the slight depression, heading north. All the way up. It's about five kilometers. He paused. I wish I could give you more. Yet on, apologetically. Anything else we should know? Nathan asked. John looked graver than normal. Take these. It was two compasses. No. That's all we have. Get there, observe, and get back fast. Confirm whether it's actually the black hand or not. Now get going. We started towards the rope. One last thing. We paused. Reed tossed over warm-looking hats and gloves. You might need those. And, with that, we slid from the skyheart to the ground. Even the doors had been open. It was much cooler outside. Nathan checked the compass, and we started walking. It was dusk in the basin. However, the sun was going down fast. Just as we pushed our way from the small clearing into the brush, I looked back at the skyheart. All the exterior lights had been put out. So at that there, only the soft orange glow coming from the portholes. The walk towards the slope wasn't too bad. We found a stream, so there wasn't a considerable amount of underbrush around it. As we were getting close to the slope, it started getting more and more inclined. We hadn't spoke much in our one-kilometer hike through the forest. All of a sudden, the trees seemed to end, all at once. Dear Lord, the mountain towered above us. That's only four kilometers? Nathan nodded. Yep. We started climbing. It wasn't a difficult climb, at first. It especially grew more difficult as the light continued to fade. We struggled our way up, still following the stream, but soon enough, even that ended. We paused to take a break. It had gotten brighter as we climbed, even though the sun continued to go down. I took a drink of water, looking back at where the sky hurt should be. I couldn't even make it out. Then I looked up higher. Large amounts of clouds were moving in. They looked volatile. We might want to hurry it up a little bit. Nathan looked towards the clouds. You're probably right. We got back up and climbed onward, now in a zigzag pattern as the slope was getting much steeper. How much? He took a deep breath. Farther. I looked up. Not. I tripped over a rock. Far now. We struggled upwards for a little longer. Liam, what did we volunteer for this? I laughed. Hell if I know. I looked behind me. The clouds had rolled over the other side of the crater, and the temperature was dropping. I pulled on my hat and gloves and kept going upwards. Finally reached the ridge. Both of us were panting hard. Damn it. 
We could see the bright electric lights shining up, but there was a secondary ridge that extended down from the mountain. We started walking down it. You know, Liam, I haven't been with the sky hurt long. A few snowflakes started falling. But a year ago, we were in the far north of the American continent. Yeah? Anyway, it was sub-zero. Six feet of snow, it was something else. The engine stalled, the water froze. This reminds me of that. Even though it was colder, and we currently lack all of the snow. It was truly night now, when we stopped at the end of the ridge. Nathan swore, then said, It's almost like they're not even trying to hide from us. This valley was shaped like a Y. Two arms were shallow and steep. The center of the Y was fenced off, and you could tell it was all fenced off because of the electric lights that surrounded the complex on the fence, facing both inward and outward. The lights reflected all the way back up the valley. Snow began whipping us in the face. Nathan pulled out a notebook and pencil. Tell me what you see. I look closely. Five hangers. Three on the far side. Two on this side. The hangers sat at the bottom part of the imaginary Y. Four small watchtowers, all facing back to the main valley. Two along the main, far valley wall. Right where the imaginary Y split into two arms was a large steel door and a bunker structure set into the mountain. I relayed all of that back to Nathan scribbled it down. Nathan looked up. Who knows how large this place actually is? What else? I kept scanning. A dozen feet above the door, there was a level space. It was covered in a concrete pad, creating a kind of landing zone. It was definitely a landing pad. A moment later, I realized it had to be, due to the five jet black airships tied there. The ropes went from the ship back to the ground. Long ladders also hung to the ground. Do you see the airships? Nathan looked up again. I think we can both definitely agree this is the Black Hand, then. I had completely forgotten that we were supposed to be identifying this with the Black Hand, but Nathan was right. Each airship was painted with a sinister Black Hand. I, however, got distracted by something else. On the left arm of the Y was something that might just be the key to this whole thing. The snow had picked up. Nathan, look at that. He looked at me. What? I pointed over to the south side of the compound. His eyes widened as he saw it too. The fence didn't actually encircle the entire compound. On the south side of the compound was what looked like a secondary compound, off of a small lake. Liam, it's a dam. A dam that looks barely even gathered. I couldn't see a single figure and the only light was from that small building by the dam. We stood and spied a little longer, but we didn't see a single person moving about by the dam. Figures still returned from the hangars to the main door, but no one else. We still waited for a little longer, but didn't notice a single other noteworthy detail. However, Nathan still scribbled everything down. There was now well over an inch of snow on the ground, and it was getting hard to see the compound. Nathan closed his book. We should probably get going. We strickled back up the ridge and over the top of the rim. The snow was building up fast. This was quickly becoming a blizzard. Even with the warmer coats and gloves and hats, the cold was biting. Our shoes were not built for this.
he chattered out. Y you know, Nathan, I'm going to have to agree with you. Nathan went to sit down, to take a break, but some rocks must have slipped under his feet because he fell on his butt. Then he started sliding. The him? Within a second, he was a dozen feet away from me, desperately trying to stop. He then flipped onto his side and started rolling. Now he was going head over heels. I just stood there as he kept going. Then I realized I should probably do something. I started running after him. Three steps. And I felt something change. Damn. If I stopped, I would go over too. I had nothing to do but keep running. Nathan, still a little way ahead of me, finally came to a stop. However, he came to a stop directly in front of me. I jumped over him. It worked. I flew over him and landed on my feet. Approximately for one split second. My momentum carried me forward and my feet went flying backwards. The only thing I could do was tuck and roll. I kept rolling. And rolling. It felt like an eternity of rolling. But finally, I came to a halt. I turned over and threw up, then looked up to find my bearings. I saw the stream just a few feet below me. Further, some trees. Twenty more feet, and I would have been crashing into those trees. I turned around. Nathan was carefully coming down, although rather quickly, so he wasn't too far off behind me. I stood up and tried to brush off the snow. My head was still spinning. Nathan came up and grabbed me by the shoulder. Are you okay? I started laughing. He looked even more concerned. I choked down the laughter. You looked so ridiculous. The concern looked, turned into indignation. You didn't look any better. We both started laughing. Then we started back down the mountain. Just before we entered the trees, I looked back. What had taken close to half an hour to climb, we had just done in under five minutes back down. But we still had about half the slope left to go down. So, about two kilometers left of the Skyheart. The wind had disappeared in the basin, making the temperature more tolerable. We didn't speak, as we were a lot more careful climbing down through the trees. Thankfully, there was less snow. Nathan finally spoke again. If it hadn't been for the snow, we probably would be dead. I was going to make a quip until I saw his faith. It was deathly serious. I patted him on the shoulder. It's alright now, though. We continued in silence until we reached the bottom of a slope. Nathan stuck out his arm and whispered under his breath, Red tail. A thing was lying in the underbrush, apparently asleep, or it was hiding. It looked like a large, hairless fox that was extremely muscular, with a long, scaly tail that ended in a sharp barb on the end. Nathan, he gave me a sidelined look. What? You duck off into the woods, and I'll distract it. Then you cut it down when it comes after me. Instead of answering, he ducked off into the side. I drew my blade and yelled, Hey! And kicked the dirt for good measure. He was on its feet and facing me in a second, bloodshot eyes glaring at me. It growled once and came bounding at me. It leaped through the air. I saw Nathan's blade come sweeping through the air, and it missed it by its hair's breath. I slashed at it, but it did nothing but knock it aside. It skidded on the ground, turned, and jumps once more, claws extending. 
barbed tail reaching. This time, however, Nathan's blade was true, and he stabbed it right through the chest. He thudded to the ground as he quickly pulled his blade back. That was... Before I had finished the sentence, Nathan cut me off. Run! And he bolted in the direction of the sky art. I turned and followed, running just behind him. We didn't stop running until we were close to where I guessed the Skyheart was. What was that? I demanded. He looked at me. I thought you lived out on the Wyss. I did? I said as we started walking again. He shook his head. But they can smell blood. All of those of you surviving on the ground, and I had forgotten something so simple. Sorry. We continued on through the woods through the trees and fighting for the underbrush. Soon we saw the very soft, orange glow of windows. We came into the clearing, heading for the still dangling rope. Nathan, you go first. Nathan accepted and climbed up the rope first. When he was about ten feet off the ground, I started climbing up behind him. He reached the top, stepping onto the small ledge outside the bay door. He looked back down at me. They shut the door on us. I, still hanging on the rope, said, well, then knock. He started knocking on the door and yelling, Hello, we're home. The door slid open almost immediately, and he jumped in. I climbed the rest of the way up and hopped in as well. Reed stood there, waiting for us. Took you guys long enough. As soon as I was fully inside, he slid the door back shut. It was a lot warmer in here. I think I'd forgotten how cold it was outside. Come give your report to the crew. Reed waved his hand and walked into the galley. Nathan looked over at me. Who's giving the report? You or me? Please don't make me do it. I patted him on the shoulder. You are the one with the note. I'll be there to fill in the blanks. He groaned. All right. He pulled out his notepad, and I followed him into the galley. The entire crew, plus Sarah, sat in the galley, all expectancy looking at us. Nathan started talking. No one said a word, but John, who interjected us to ask questions, most of which we couldn't answer. I only had to interject twice. They have at least five working airships, Nathan finished up. John nodded, thinking, All of you go get some sleep. Nathan, Liam, you stay here. That hadn't been a suggestion. Everyone else climbed up the ladder. John slid down into the gondola. Myself and Nathan stood there, but he came back a moment later holding a map. He laid it upside down, on the blank side up, on a table with two pens. This is a map of Antarctica, so it's not even accurate anymore. I want you to draw a map of the compound, then head off to bed yourselves. We have a long day tomorrow. Of course, sir. Nathan drew out the basic outline of the valley itself. I started in on the location of the buildings. It took well over an hour as we even talked back and forth. John asked ever increasingly and more specific questions, even down to the approximate steepness of the surrounding mountains. But finally, we finished and stepped back to admire our handiwork. John rolled it up and tucked it under his arm. Well done. Go turn in. Then he turned around and walked into his cabin, closing the door behind him. Myself and Nathan climbed up the ladder and went off to our separate rooms. I changed into more comfortable clothes and hopped into my bunk.
It had only been one day, yet it felt like ten. I passed out the moment my head hit the pillow. John. I closed the door as I walked into my cabin. I swept everything off my desk and laid down the map. I had the makings of a plan. But would it work? Probably not. I had too little information, and not enough crew. But I had to try. I could see the burning valley and northern tier, clear as day in my mind. To know it was all these men's fault, and leave them? Give them the possibility of escaping? It would take over a day to get to Visby, the largest city. With everything else going on in the nation, it would take two weeks to muster forces. Three days back. That gave ten to twenty days to get back. That was too long. By then, they could have found their destroyed ship and suspected somebody was on to them. In ten days, they could disappear. No, it had to be now or never. I pulled back my desk chair and got to work. I worked late into the night and finally crashed in my bed. It was another fitful night of sleep. That didn't last very long. January 23rd. It was only January 23rd. Not even a full month since the fall of Valley and the death of Cerberus. Not even a full month since Liam had lost everything left to him. Since the woman, Susan, had also lost the last thing left to her. Not even a full month since thousands lost everything including their lives. I sat up and looked over at the clock. It read 4.48. Three and a half hours of sleep then. I pulled back my chair and sat down. I stared at the map and my plan. There was barely anything, but it was as good as I could get with the information I had. I didn't think I could do better. I stood up and paced over to my bed. I flipped up the blanket and pulled out the small wooden box from under it. It was a box of coffee beans. Of the ground colonies and cities, only two of them could grow coffee beans, Old Oahu and Sister Islands. So it was a treasured commodity across the nation. Normally, only the very rich or very well-connected could get their hands on it. I was very well-connected. So I always kept a small supply with the dried beans on board for days just like these. I poured some into a cup, then took my knife and ground them. Leaving the cup in my room, I ventured out and grabbed the strainer, boiled water, all together within ten minutes. I was sitting back at my desk and drinking the beautifully warm cup of coffee. I sat once more, rethinking my idea. I couldn't stop. I knew that now. I heard the tap-tap of someone knocking at my door. Who is it? Robert, sir. Come in. He came in. Robert was the only one on board who was older than me. I had never truly figured out his age. He could be a decade or two, or even just a year older than me. He had dark gray hair with flecks of white in it, and a tired face. 
He sat down heavily on the edge of my bed. I turned to face him. He started talking immediately. John, I haven't held a blade in almost twenty years. Never once. I relied on my wits and my knife. I sat there in silence, hoping that there was some greater point that you'd get to soon. I was trying not to have to kill another human, ever again, and I've succeeded. So I ask you, what are you trying to do with this stunt? I stood up, angry, angry that he'd even dared to ask me questions like that. How dare you? After Northern Tier, after Valley, you saw what these monsters did. He sighed, his face a sad one. You miss my point, Captain. He paused for a minute then, me still on my feet. He started speaking correctly, slowly. I was about to say something, but he cut me off first. Are you doing this out of vengeance? Or are you trying to save those who are far beyond your saving? That can do nothing for us now. We could make a run to Visby and end this now. But you're not going to. So why? It's not because it's practical. Maybe it's the right thing to do. But once more, because why you do something matters. Why are you doing this? I sank back into my chair, ashamed. Robert was the only one who was on board who dared talk to me like that. But that's one of the many reasons he was also the only one who knew more about me than any other crew member. Look at us, Robert. How much longer can we keep going like this? He stood up. Until the job is done. But why we're doing the job is almost as important as the thing itself. He left me then, leaving me to ponder why. The crew was eating breakfast at seven o'clock. I had decided to go join them, and plan just after the meal. No one talked much. Everyone kept looking over at me, waiting, probably waiting to hear what we were going to do next, what the plan was. This was my last chance to change my mind. I could just tell them we were going to Visby, and that would be that. But I wouldn't do that. I couldn't do that. I stood up, got the map, and splayed it out on my table. They all left the other two tables and gathered around to see it. I pointed at the map. On the eastern end of the compound is these hangars. On the western end is the entrance to some kind of bunker. On the southern end is a dam and our weak spot. I had everyone's fullest attention now. We will leave this evening, and we are going to break through that weak spot, disable the dam, hopefully knocking out their power in the process. After the power is out, we should be shrouded in darkness. Three of you are going to sabotage the hangars and the airships. The rest of us are going to blow the door, sealing them into that bunker. When, and only when, you get the signal from either myself or Reed. I looked around at all of them. 
Remember, we are not here to destroy them. They most likely outnumber us ten to one. We are here to cripple them. Then make the run. We fetch more Earhart troops from Visby before they can even crawl back out of their hole. Then we come back and we wipe them out. There are certain preparations that have to be made, but that is for later. Now, as follows, Liam, Zoe, and Callan, you are responsible for the airships and the hangars. The rest of you are with Reed, and are going to hold the doors, and place our explosives, while myself and Susan go into that hellhole to find her son. Understand? I said the last part with deep sadness in my heart, knowing that we would never find her son. Everyone but Reed answered, Yes, sir. Then go prepare yourselves as you see fit. They broke apart, leaving Reed at the table. I like your plan, sir. But, do you really think it is the best idea to go in alone with an untested stranger? We can knock out the door and their airships. If we do, you know as well as I do that you'll be risking your life for nothing. I looked over to Susan, who was talking to Aspen, with whom she had been temporarily placed. Not to her, Reed. He looked over. I can't stop you, can I? No, you can't. He stood up. I'm going to go get ready. I stood up and followed him up the ladder. But where he went to his room, I went into the weapons room. It was empty. I pulled out the whetstone, oil, and a cloth, and then returned to my own quarters, where I spent the rest of the morning in silence and my thoughts, sharpening my blade. Around noon, the snow finally abated. Despite the blizzard-like conditions, for more than fourteen hours, no more than a foot of snow had formed on the ground. I thank God. It was probably the only reason there hadn't been black hand patrols. Lunch was a silent affair. No one even asked me a single thing, which was rare. I spent the afternoon covering the final details of the plan and trying to make sure everyone knew what they were supposed to do, as well as finalizing a few other things. When dinner rolled around, I stood to address the crew. I know the tension has been high today. Kellen, though, actually chuckled at that. We leave in an hour. And remember, if it comes to breaking the plan, or saving yourself or anyone else's life, do so. Every plan will fail the moment it's put into action. Please finalize that which you need to. I want everyone ready in the cargo bay at 5.55 local time. That is all. I sat back down. They went back to talking, but now in hushed tones as if they were at a funeral. I could only pray that there wasn't going to be one tomorrow. After the meal, I helped Robert with the dishes. Then I went and got my own heavy leather fur coat. I resheathed my sword and swung it on my back. Finally, I checked to make sure the gloves were in my pocket as well as a knitted cap. I looked in the small mirror on my closet door, and then left my room, heading into the cargo bay. Reed and James sat on the floor. Reed was holding open a bag as James weighed on his medical scales. 
James poured in the black powder, and Reed carefully tied it shut, well, putting a fuse into it. Then he set it into one of five small piles. Do you think that is enough? James asked Reed. I sure hope so, I answered. The Skyheart didn't need gunpowder, but we kept a very well-secured barrel on board, just in case. How much of the stores did that use up? Reed stood up and looked inside the barrel. About half. He looked down at the piles of bags that himself and James had been making over the course of the afternoon. How do you want this divided up? I picked up one bag and weighed it in my hand. Do we still have that cache of GLC lighters? James stood up. I can go check. As he was rummaging through one of the crates of miscellaneous containers, I turned to Reed. How many bags is in each pile? Ten. I turned and thought about it for a moment. I want one pile to be split between Zoe and Callan. Three to the door guard. I'll take the last. I then went and grabbed a few extra satchels from another bin. Soon, seemingly in an instant, it was six o'clock local time. The crew was packed and ready to go. My feet were the first to hit the solid dirt. I was leading, Nathan by my side. As we reached where we would start our climb up the ridge, I paused to look up. It looked like so many other high mountain ridges. But on the other side of this mountain lay a monster's lair, and we were going to bury them. Only problem, we didn't know what monsters was actually there. I would just like to thank you so much for listening. You didn't have to do that, and it means a lot to me. So, thank you very much, and I hope you have a wonderful week. And, as always, good night, good luck, and don't get lost. <laughs>